You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Just a quick reminder that we are, at this point, shamelessly plugging our new old book, the second edition of Genesis for Normal People, which is out now. You can buy it on Amazon, anywhere fine books are sold online, or go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash books, and you'll find a link there. So, just a reminder, that's out now. We're really excited about it. We hope you can pick up a copy. Today, our topic is, does the New Testament predict the future. So, hmm. well, does it, Pete? Does it? They're going to have to w- listen to this podcast. And oh. the answer is yes and no. Of course. Typical. It depends. It depends. That's what the Bible is all about. It depends. This is how scholars obfuscate yep. simple things, obvious things. But that's right. So, that's today uh, we are talking with Andrew Perryman, who is a New Testament scholar who focuses on the, the New Testament and has written pretty extensively on this understanding of things like apocalyptic, eschatological revelation, Jesus talking about the future, and we mm. want to maybe spend a few minutes here. Why don't we unpack some of that? Because that's some some big terminology that we use there. Yeah, and the, th- the thing is that, you know, what, what I think should come through is that talking about the New Testament and what the New Testament says about the future is actually a little bit complicated. It's not obvious. and But, you know, uh, Andrew uses some terms because, you know, he's a, a New Testament scholar, and a few of those we just want to throw out there and just briefly define them. And, you know, if, if you're not familiar with them, you can look them up too. But uh, he mentions a guy, Josephus, who was a first century um, Jewish interpreter of the times. And, you know, he, he was, might make an occasional reference to Christianity. That's a little bit uh, debated, at least some of those are. But, but he's a Jewish interpreter trying to sort of explain Jewish history to the elite of the day. And he's an important sort of witness to what's happening in Judaism during the first century. That's that. Um, he mentions this term parousia or parousia, which is a Greek term, which means sort of like coming, um, a coming. Arriving. You know? yeah. yeah, the coming of Jesus, which is sort of a technical term that just means second coming. Or just any coming, coming not, yeah. not the first, not not. See, that's the point. You got to listen to this, right? Because I right away went to that default right. place, and that's sort of like what Andrew's saying. You can't go there because the New Testament might not be talking about stuff the way we're used to hearing it. Um, he also mentions Antiochus Epiphanes, which is a great name if you're a homeschooler to name your kids. It's sort of a biblical name, but not really. Uh, but he he was a uh, you know. Long story short, he was a Greek uh, ruler who lived in the early second century BC. And it was under his rule that there was a lot of attempts to uh, force Jews to convert to Jewish ways. And that's important because that sets a big tone for what it means to be Jewish in that world and how that really um, it, it that that narrative continued into the time of Jesus. You know, when we think of how Jesus and Paul relate to their own tradition, we tend to jump right to the Old Testament. But we, we have to be careful because in there in that immediate background is an, the issue of Jewish identity in the face of Greek persecution, and now the Romans are in charge, and how are things going to go? Well, there's like 400 – yeah, it's interesting. You have to think about it in context that there is, what, a, at least a few hundred years between what we would call the Old Testament and the New Testament, Daniel, of course, which we reference in here, is, mm-hmm. is pretty late. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I grew up thinking that was an older book, but it would be kind of in the same place 
that Antiochus Epiphanes would be around. Mm -hmm. And it's just important because we want to say, what's the context of the New Testament? What's the Old Testament? Well, there's these few hundred years. That's a long time. It's Uh, it's the Old Testament as it's been creatively handled by Jews living for centuries by the time we get to Jesus and Paul. And they're part of that story. They're part of that tradition. And part of that too, he mentions also, Andrew mentions Maccabean literature. Well, if you look in the Apocrypha, Oh gosh, which is which is part of, of just digging of, yourself. Of, a I know. Hole. Sorry, more folks. More. <laughs> you can't talk about anything without talking so, about so everything. During this time period, yeah. there were books written that Let's, we often call the apocrypha, which is kind of a not nice way of saying it because yeah. that means fake or false. Well, it means hidden, but they're not really hidden because right. everybody's reading them. Yeah. Yeah. But they're part. They're called hidden because they're part of the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox canon, authoritative books, but not for Protestants. But there's great stuff. In there, and the Maccabean literature has to do with this time period of Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, mm-hmm. and so he mentions a story of martyrs that's mentioned in Second Maccabees chapter seven. Impress and we your would pastor. just recommend yeah. reading some of these books because it's good for your to know your Jewish neighbors too. Because this is where we get the story of Hanukkah. Right, exactly. So if you right, wanted yeah. to know about what Hanukkah is about, read uh, one, two, three, and four Maccabees, and yeah. you'll get a good picture of that. Right, right. And don't stab your eyes out as you're doing it because it's sort of long. But I mean, actually, I mean, Jared and I were talking before. We love that stuff. It's like it's it's a window into the world that was more immediately relevant for the New Testament than Hosea or Isaiah, right? It's all those things had already been handled, interpreted, and and I like the word reimagined and thought about differently because of different circumstances. But anyway, those are just some of the terms, I guess. You know yep. that that he that he uses and. You know, I think it's good to to be exposed to some of the – for those of you – for this is new. This might be new for some of you. It's good to be exposed to that kind of vocabulary, not to impress people, but it's sort of shorthand ways of referring to some very important things that people talk about a lot when it comes to these kinds of topics like Jesus and Paul. And not, not normal people, but, but some people, people like Andrew. See, here's, here's our real goal is to turn all you normal people into abnormal <laughs> don't, people. Don't give away our oh, secret. No. Oh, no. We were going to announce that next month. Oh, well, I screwed up. So. That's right. Excellent. All right. Well, let's get this conversation with Andrew. Essentially, the church forgot the story that had sort of given rise to it. Everything that had sort of been given to the church in narrative form was felt to have come to some sort of climax and conclusion in Jesus, and then it gets translated into theological concepts. The church forgot what the point of it was. So we have inherited what seems to me a rather empty doctrine. We've lost the interpretive narrative. Right, Andrew, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. Good to have you here. Finally. I've been reading it for years, and now you're finally here. So, uh, Yeah, so, uh, Andrew, what we like to start just by, I think we have a lot of fascinating things to talk about today, and I'm, I'm really interested to dive in. But before we do that, maybe give a little uh, taste of, of your background, and, and you do a lot with the Bible. You have a lot of things, uh, interesting insights into the Bible, but how did you first get started with that? What's some of your background? I mean, I guess the, the thing to go back to is uh, university and what I did at university was an English literature degree. And I think in one way or another, that, that sort of set the tone, it set the direction for the approach to scripture. So I've not come into this particularly from the point of someone trained to 
to be, as a pastor or as a theologian, the initial interest in it was much more as a, as a work of literature, I guess. Um, but I, sort of fairly soon after university, I went on, I went to the, what was London Bible College then, spent some time there, and then went on to do uh, some postgraduate work and an MPhil and a, a PhD. But we were traveling around the world. We, uh, my wife's work uh, in the oil and gas industry was sort of taking us to various parts of the world. So I was doing much of this work on my own. Writing was something I could do under those conditions, and I spent a lot of time reading, researching, and putting my thoughts down. You have a an interest in well, I, what I called earlier. I, I mistakenly before the podcast was talking about the second coming of Jesus, and because in my background that would have been a big event. We're always looking for signs that Jesus is coming back. Yeah, and you uh, you challenged me on that and said maybe that's not a a really biblical way of even looking at that. So maybe can you say more about that as we talk about this idea of end times or Jesus coming back or the coming of the Son of Man or apocalyptic? There's many ways to look at that. So how do you frame that? Well, I, I, it's, it's a question of perspective. So yes, I mean, we, we can look at the future from our point of view and we're given a large amount of, of material in the New Testament and, and perhaps you want to include the Old Testament as well. And you think, well, look, if, if this sort of mo- massive dramatic thing has has not yet happened then it's still in the future and okay that that sort of gives us uh, the opportunity to speculate as to how these things might play out in some remote future that's looking at it from our perspective I, my you know, my, my, my concern has always been to ask, well, how does this language sound from the perspective of the historical community at the time of writing, the time of first reception? And then you begin to sort of ask, well, where does the language come from? How was it used in its original context? What are the conditions? What are the circumstances? What are the, you know, what are they looking at in terms of the world that they live in? Things that might be down the road from from their point of view, and how are they using the the material that they've drawn pretty much mostly from uh, the Old Testament? How are they using that to define the future as they might have seen it from from their point of view? Uh, and clearly, you know, from that point of view, there's an image in there, the heart of that, that is of Jesus coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus talks about it, and then in, in sort of slightly less precise ways, we, we find it elsewhere in, in the New Testament. But, but it, it's central in, in, uh, in some fashion to how Jesus and the early church saw their future. The, the question is, you know, once you, so, you put yourself within the confines of that historical perspective, how is that language, how would you expect that, imagine that language to be applied? What are, what are the boundaries to it? How far ahead are we looking? What going on in the real world might that, what sort of issues, what sort of developments going on in the real world might that language have applied to? And, and you know, you, you, you then end up with, with potentially a, a, a foreshortened perspective. How, you know, this question, how far are they looking? And we can sort of ask the question of ourselves. If we look into the future, what are we realistically looking at? What lies down the road for us? I mean, we're, I'm in the UK. One of the things that potentially lies down the road is Brexit. So this sort of new relationship with Europe. What might one want to say about that? Not Not from a sort of christian biblical point of view but just in terms of understanding our world much further down the road or maybe not that much further down the road are issues relating to climate change how do we talk about those within sort of the normal secular context but perhaps also increasingly from uh, 
uh, sort of Christian point of view. So, Andrew, just just I'm going to make sure I understand here. So, what you're saying this is very interesting here. I think what you're saying is how we today talk about the future of Brexit and the future of climate change. We might need to think of Jesus's second coming, if that's even the right way to put it. The same way, like from the perspective of those who were uttering that way back when, what were they thinking, and what yeah. might the what are they what are they expecting using language like that? And it might not be how that language has come to be understood over, let's say, the centuries. Yeah, I mean, a lot has a lot has happened. That was a long time ago, and obviously, one of the things that happened was that the church moved into the the Greek and Roman world, uh, into a very different culture, a very different worldview, uh, where language functioned very differently, where there are different philosophical presuppositions that are brought to, and I think critically, I think essentially the church forgot the story that uh, had sort of given rise to it. So everything that that everything that has sort of been given to the church in narrative form, as you know, an engagement of God's people with historical crises, you know, lurching from one crisis to another and trying to make sense of it as God's people, that that long story was felt to have come to some sort of climax and conclusion in Jesus, and then it gets translated into basically sort of theological concepts. And we've inherited that, and one of those uh, ideas, one of those concepts, has been the second coming, because well, clearly that's there in the New Testament. But we've, I, my sense is, uh, the, the church uh, fairly quickly forgot what the point of it was. So you, we have inherited, or what seems to me, a rather empty doctrine. I mean, what, in, in as much, yeah, I mean, clearly there's a, there's a point to it. You can you can say, well, Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven to sort of wrap up history something like that, um, but we've lost the interpretive narrative that, that made sense of it to the early church, and we, we're simply no longer in the historical situation where it was felt to be important to be able to say these things, uh, for Jesus to communicate to his disciples, for Paul to sort of teach the churches, for J John in Revelation to sort of do whatever he, he's doing in Revelation. That needed to be said at that point, well, you know, do we need to say it in the same terms now, or have we sort of moved into a very sort of different future where, where things look very different, and and that sort of language simply doesn't work the same way? Right. Okay, well, let's let's get into some specifics in a minute. But uh, the the Greek and Roman, let's say, categories that maybe usurped the Jewish narrative, I think is what yeah. you're saying. About when are we talking about? Is this second century? Is this later than that? Or what, yeah, yeah, roughly when are we yeah. talking? Well, I mean, I mean, sort of, I, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not a early church historian. I, I mean, I'm not going to try and, and sort of give a detailed account. Clearly, what preoccupied the early church from a fairly, you know, fairly early on was not eschatology it was christology and you know how do we talk about who jesus is and who jesus is in relation to the father and and to the spirit and so on so you know for some time that was what preoccupied the the minds of the the early church the the early church fathers and i mean eschatology is there uh, and, and the, 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 there's the odd sort of millenarian movement isn't there um Mm -hmm. But it, it, it it's already become a fringe thing. It's become a sort of a distraction. It's become disruptive. So you, you, you get the sense that the church is having to sort of consolidate and develop a new worldview that works uh, in the, the Greek and Roman 
uh, environment and eschatology was was threatening uh, you know perhaps uh, for for very good reason so i my guess is it largely gets suppressed and it's probably only in the modern era that it's, it's sort of gone somewhat mainstream again and now we're sort of coming back to it with a very different set of questions because of the, the you know what we've learned from historical criticism and so on. So you say that eschatology may have been suppressed in a way that uh, because it would have been threatening. Why would it have been threatening in that day? Uh, well, I, you know, again, this is sort of this is beyond my um, you know my my knowledge, uh, somewhat my area of knowledge. It, um, well, I, yeah, I mean, it's eschatology. I mean, apocalyptic is shaking up. It, it's it it threatens systems. So the, there's an essential message there that some everything is going to be thrown into disorder. God is going to do something new and overturn the, the the present arrangement. And if if the present arrangement is the church trying to sort of build, you know, whatever it's trying to do in those centuries, then apocalyptic is going to to be disruptive. So would would those so to get really concrete, those passages in the new testament revelation or even some of these passages we have in the gospels that point to the future you know what i heard you saying earlier was what they might have meant in that context wasn't to sort of propel us two thousand years into the future for us to think about it in the same way but they had a very specific context that it wasn't just out of blue that they were in some sort of trance and see some sort of future vision but it's almost like they're reading the signs of the times there are cracks in the foundations there are things going on at that time that led to a more imminent conclusion than uh, maybe what we uh, for me personally i would have grown up thinking about so what kind of what was that context what were the cracks in the foundations and was there a culmination point in the ancient world that we could point to and say this is probably what was being talked about rather than 2000 years ago and yeah. you know all these political things that are happening today yeah i i mean i i sort of talk in terms of three horizons three eschatological horizons that we that we find in the, the New Testament, and the, the first one is is from Jesus' point of view, from the, the and from the point of view of the early church in Jerusalem, the horizon is what, what is going to happen to Jerusalem, what is going to happen to the temple, what is going to happen to that whole system that up until that point had, had um, sustained a people as a witness to the living God, and I mean that's a fairly clear horizon. The, the war against Rome, which was not that difficult to to predict was the um the, that sort of massive turning point that massive uh, disruption of the whole the whole thing and the moment when you know from the from our point of view looking back as sort of in the heirs of the 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 new testament that is the moment that that really concretely marked the 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 transition from second temple judaism to the church of jesus christ as that sort of witnessing community that i think is the first horizon uh, i think jesus uh, pretty much everything that jesus says is said with that horizon in view and uh, you know so also one of the 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 implications of this approach is is that actually we're putting more than just certain eschatological passages back into that framework we're putting the whole thing back into that framework and not trying to sort of tease these different bits apart this belongs there and this we can work with now and so on initially at least it's sort of treated as a whole narrative uh, as whole cloth and ask how does it uh, how does it um, speak to us from within its own context with that horizon fairly sort of clearly fairly firmly in view 
the second horizon i think doesn't sort of begin to emerge until you the church gets out into the greek and roman world and then the fate of israel doesn't get forgotten um but but clearly then new challenges arise new opportunities arise and i think at that point the the issue becomes well is if jesus has been seated at the right hand of god as israel's king what what does that mean for the nations and it, and specifically i think uh, and I, I think the new testament is fairly focused still what does that mean for the nations of the greek and roman world so the, the the prospect emerges the um that you know god has made his son king put him uh, this is a sort of descendant of david has been seated at the right hand of power given all authority and power it suddenly dawns on them that, that this is going to change not just israel's world it's going to change the the greek and roman world and i you know i would go as far as to say that when paul in philippians 2 speaks of every knee bowing every tongue confessing that jesus christ is lord he means in practice in effect uh, the nations of the the empire and so uh, that which sort of allows us then to uh, sort of bring christendom and the whole of christian europe and the history that that ensued from that and everything that happened as a consequence for, for better or for worse it at least allows us to join up the story so the, the, mm-hmm. then the, the biblical narrative, the Old Testament narrative, New Testament narrative, story of the church, uh, they link together, they join together. Uh, so that would be a second horizon. And I think before, you know, before the, you get to the third, Andrew, I just want to be clear. The first horizon, uh, well, the first horizon is, is Jesus. AD 70, yeah, the war against Rome, the, the destruction second, of Jerusalem. And the second horizon, it, we're still in the New Testament, right? Yes, okay. I think so. Well, you right, mentioned so Philippians think, and things, so, right. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, and I would, yeah, and I, this is sort of less, uh, you know, this, less clear cut. It's harder to argue. And in, in, in a sense that, you know, that second horizon is a bit further off. It's not so sharply conceived. It's, it's sort of somewhat hazier. It's in the cloud. But I, I think it, you know, the, this expectation arises that the, the God of Israel, you know, not only puts his people right, he then deals with the enemies of his people. He then deals with that hostile context that, that is sort of, uh, you know, the, the nations uh, conspiring against the, the Lord and his anointed. Mm-hmm. Um, God deals with that. Okay. Uh, it does, certainly in Old Testament terms, you would expect that. Uh, and a big part of the argument is that actually the, you know, the, old, the New Testament is simply a, a continuation of that Old Testament story with similar uh, constraints on it from that historical point of view. So, yes, I, I, would, I would say, and I accept the fact that this is, this is controversial and you know, I don't get a lot of agreement on this with, from people, but I think to understand the next stage of New Testament eschatology, we have to be willing to take very seriously that sort of historical moment of the conversion of the Roman Empire. Okay. All right. So, See, I, yeah, as I say, I mean, I don't get a lot of agreement on that. <laughs> well, I mean, interestingly, I, you know, with biblical scholars, it's hard to argue with historians you know the penny well no, it's the penny drops i mean often they're ahead of me and uh, i find sort of chatting to historians about this that it, it, it's sort of not such a, a remarkable mm-hmm. claim to be making right. that that one of the a major trajectory of new testament eschatology lands uh with the conversion of the nations at that moment when the right. nations of their world confess it, that jesus christ is lord so this is constantine in the fourth century and 
Yeah. Right. So is that the third horizon or are we still on the second? No, that's the second okay, horizon. Okay, I say, no, the third horizon then. I, I so the third horizon, you. I don't think you see very, uh, it doesn't sort of feature very prominently in the New Testament, but I think it's very clear, certainly at the end of Revelation, and there, there are pointers to it here and there in Paul. And that is the renewal of heaven and earth, some sort of some final act of putting things right on the on the part of the creator God, a final judgment, a final destruction of all that is evil and a renewal of heaven and earth, because it's it's intolerable that the creator would indefinitely put up with. Uh, a marred creation. Mm-hmm. So there's a sense in which it seems to kind of be scaling out in some ways. This first horizon, um, Jesus is is interested in the question of what's going to happen to Jerusalem in the future, and and the the, the gospel writers per- primarily are interested in that question. And then there's this kind of uh, scaling out to Rome and and Greek influence. What does this mean for the nations, specifically these nations now that we are assimilating into in some ways? Yeah. And then there's this sort of cosmic third horizon of the renewal of all things. And more yeah, our, and, and we so we are somewhere between. Uh, you know, that second horizon and the third horizon. But I think, I mean, one of the things that this model allows us to do is ask serious questions about our own place in the, the storyline uh, in this. I mean, we Christendom came, but it also went. Mm-hmm. It, it, it collapsed for, I mean, you sort of discussed the reasons why Christendom collapsed. Perhaps it was probably inevitable. It, it was perhaps a, a mark of the failure of the a loss of integrity on the part of the church or however we want to look at it but we're dealing with a very different situation the rise of um uh, uh, you know a, a secular culture a rational secular culture uh, is is a massive challenge to the witness of a you know a biblical people and i think what this this sort of model allows us to do then is to sort of narrate our own eschatology in that more immediate sense so yeah keep in view a final renewal of all things because that gives us that that fundamental confidence in the creator god who has called us to be his own people hi everyone my name is megan kamick and i'm part of the producers group here at the bible for normal people this podcast is brought to you by supporters on the patreon platform For as little as $1 per month, you can be part of the group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. Some things I appreciate about being part of the Patreon group is the supportive community, the fantastic book recommendations, and Pete and Jared answering all of my questions. Just kidding. I just develop more questions. If this free podcast has enriched your life in any way, please consider supporting the hard work Pete and Jared put in to making this podcast something worth listening to at patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people. One group in particular we want to thank is our producers group who truly helped the podcast improve and make it what it is today. Thanks to Jason Mann, Angela Smith, Rob Buckingham, Kendall Miller, Miles Dance, Lori Volkley, Marlon Wall, and Peter E. Watts. The Bible for normal people couldn't happen without you. Now back to the podcast. Is that less of a is that less of a historical situatedness and more of a I get the sense it's more of a moral situation. 
well like the destruction of all evil seems more i'm not trying to locate myself and saying kind of the left behind series where i'm saying this is a code for that but there's this more cosmic understanding that what i'm shooting for what i'm what i'm as a christian i'm moving toward is justice the renewal of all things the destruction of evil and the you know the victory of good and that's a more of a moral charge than it is trying to locate these historical events in some way that now jesus is going to vindicate these historical realities and and usher in this new thing in in that sense is that making sense yeah it, i mean it makes sense i mean i think all i would add to it is that uh, it's more than moral because at, at the heart of that new creation is that the, the god dwells with his people and wipes away every tear from their eyes and you know there's no more suffering and no more sin and uh, everything else but it, it's certainly not that sort of fantasy thing that that we we sometimes mm-hmm. get from uh, you know these various apocalyptic schemas that are put out there. I mean, because I think you know we those the details, the apocalyptic details that we get from Jesus, or we get from Paul, or we get from Revelation had they they had a they had relevance seen from the, the their own historical perspective and you you can sort of see that and you can sort of tease the these sort of details apart and work out well, why they have been drawn from scripture and what sort of story they are telling from the perspective of Jesus and his disciples in in Judea or from the perspective of Paul and the churches in Asia Minor and Greece, or you know, uh, so they, they have a relevance. Then it's when it's when you sort of lump them all together and try and sort of throw them into an indeterminate future. From our point of view, uh, it's it, it just it's just the language just doesn't work that way. So I have a, a practical question about how we read the Bible moving forward. So just to summarize, when Jesus <clears throat> is talking about the future. Largely, he's talking about the immediate context of what's going to happen in in 70 AD, kind of the culmination of this tension between the Jewish people and the Romans. And so that that's kind of finds what that's what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about the 20th century. And then in this second horizon, it's, it's situated in this Rome and Greece context. So it finds its fulfillment, if you want to say it that way, in that context. So how do we today who aren't in that 70 AD situation. We're not living in a tension yeah. between Rome and, and the Jewish people. We're not living in a Roman or Greek state. How do we now make meaning out of out of these texts? What is it? How do we read those? I, yeah, it, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, this is this is the, the obvious criticism that if you take this approach, then you're sort of you're saying, well, actually, well, the Bible has nothing to say to us because it, it spoke into, into these ancient periods. Uh, in my sense is that you know if we tell our story well then we will understand how we deal with the present i mean tom wright has that that sort of well-known analogy of a shakespearean play a five-act play and in the first four acts plus a little bit more you've got the biblical narrative and the the church is now a group of shakespearean actors who have to uh, work out where the story goes next they're, they are faithful to its the first four acts uh, they know the mind of the uh, the playwright and they they are entrusted with acting it out so there's an element of creativity in that I, I think that sort of uh, hermeneutic works. I think it. Uh, I, I've sort of written about this. Uh, I blogged about this. I mean, I think I would make this. It's much more like the three-part Shakespearean histories. Uh, that uh, the, the, the problem with Wright's approach is it, it has very little to say about uh, the last eighteen hundred, two thousand years of church history, and uh, nothing to say about well, what are we facing next? Uh, 
Uh, how do we how do we tell a story about a people of God that has gone through all that whole of the Old Testament experience through this New Testament experience that is projected into the you know, the future of the of the early church? And you know, that we had fifteen hundred years of Christian dominance in Europe that, that spread around the globe that has come to an end. How? How do we tell that story? How do we, we tell a story that makes sense of being a marginalized uh, religious community in, you know, in the UK, in, in Europe, which is very secular in places, and increasingly in the US? I mean, this is simply looking at it from our very Western perspective. But I think, you know, this is what we need to learn to do. Let, tell the story and, and let the telling of the story tell us how to... Uh, live what we're here for i mean I, the 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 heart of this the heart of the whole thing is the fact that god called a people the creator god the god who created all things good has called a people to be uh, you know uh, a priestly people a servant people uh, an embodiment of new creation and then the story is well how do, how is this held together throughout history and what we see, there are sort of moments of crisis in the Old Testament that have survived. Um, you know, we don't go back and live the exodus again. We don't go back and live the exile again, though we may critically and intelligently say some of the things that the church has experienced are like those, but we're not going back and living them again. And I would read the New Testament in somewhat the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's an experience, a, a moment in the history of this people that has radically transformed it uh, and shaped it and made it what it is. Uh, you know, in simple terms, Jesus has been given to it as, as Lord. He has saved it from uh, that sort of final destruction of AD 70 because of the sin, uh, the pers persistent sin of the people, and uh, established a new covenant. And these are, the, that's the, the, you know, the basic... Uh, mm -hmm. uh, definition of, of what the church is. Now we are living with that and the the uh, the christendom church had to work out as best it could how to do that under the particular political circumstances that that uh, presented or presented to it we have to work out what it means under very different circumstances yeah so in a way it's i mean it, I, I do see these connections you're drawing between old and new testament because you know in second temple judaism before you know the two three four hundred years before the coming of christ um, Jews were already having to think on their feet, you know, for how to yeah. make this story, their ancient narrative, yeah. how to connect it today. And in a way, the New Testament does function in a similar way because once you get out into maybe even the late first century, you know, the Gospel of John and things like that, you've got people talking differently than you might see in other places of the New Testament because yeah. Yeah. We're, we're living in a time – that is not the same culture, the same way of thinking. You know, you mentioned Greco-Roman philosophy. You know, that's there in the New Testament, but it's – you have this Judaism thing too to, to deal with right before AD 70. Mm -hmm. and, and people are trying to – I'm just making sure I'm hearing you right, Andrew. People are – they've always had to try to figure out what do, – how does the story continue, paying attention to where the story's been – but not thinking that that is going to define our present moment, which is hard for some. I mean, I, I think that's fascinating, but I'm, I'm thinking, too, of people who might, like, freak out a little bit at the thought of yeah. what yeah. Jesus, like you said before, what Jesus said had 
little to do with anything after the destruction of the temple by the Romans in AD 70, which brought judgment on the people of Israel. You know, if, that, if that's Jesus' focus, which makes a lot of sense, like the, you know, the Olivet Discourse in the Gospels, which, yeah. you know, I grew up thinking that's a prediction of, you know, 1948 or something like that. But it's like, it's pretty obvious they're talking about the temple. And it's pretty obvious they're talking about AD 70 at this point. But, and that seems to be like a culminating moment for Jesus' teachings. Like, this this is a big deal. This is all saved towards the end of the gospel stories. And, yeah. you know, it's 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 a— uh, we're really reframing what New Testament teaching is about the future here. That's really yeah, what we're uh, doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, you know, this, this in terms of sort of what we do with it, um, what you see happening in in the New Testament, as, as I see it, is, uh, and you're sort of talking about the way the Jews are doing this. The, the way you sort of make sense of, of new circumstances very often is by going back and taking old stories and retelling them. And and when you retell the story, you can't always tell it exactly the, in exactly the same way. Uh, it might have to be adapted somewhat to the to the new context. But I, I think Jesus does this all the time. So much of the not all the stories, but so many of the stories that he tells, um, the imagery that he uses is drawn from uh, from the prophets, drawn from the Psalms, uh, and retold, reused to help his disciples in particular, but also. The, you know, others that he engaged with to understand this new thing that was happening, and and one of the sort of key ones there is Daniel's vision of a, a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. I you know, I presume it, Jesus understood uh, that that Daniel was not talking about something that would happen in what well, sort of two what, uh, in the the first century AD. That passage that or that section of Daniel. As reference to a crisis in the early second century BC, the the, the, the whole business with the sort of Hellenization and Antiochus Epiphanes, and the the way that threatened the uh, existence of Israel, it was a, an existential crisis for God's people. Yeah, that's that's the the early second century BC, where Jews were threatened by forced conversion so to speak or for, for adopting greek customs and yes hanukkah I mean, it, it comes out of that and all that sort of stuff so yeah that, that's the whole thing it's, yeah. it, but and, i mean the interesting thing is it divided the jews so i mean there was a, there are progressives amongst the jews right. who actually are quite keen to adopt greek ways because this was modern it was the future why cling to our out of date antiquated religious past when we have this this wonderful new culture offered to us I, yeah. uh, Antiochus Epiphanes then sort of went uh, set about imposing it by force and the the visions of Daniel 7 to 12 emerge from that crisis from that conflict and and they are they are given in support of that loyal community amongst the Jews at least as I read it that refused to abandon the covenant and suffered as a result so th there you've got I, what I think you've got in Daniel 7, the, in the Son of Man part of that, is is a statement about the vindication of that section of Israel that is tr remains true to God under these sort of complicated new conditions. You know, the, the, the clash with the Greek world then becomes a clash with the Roman world, but the story still works, and Jews were using it, Josephus uses it to, to talk about this uh, the, the situation under Rome. 
but you've got this this image this symbol emerges out of that of the vindication of the a faithful suffering community which is you know not just vindicated but given a kingdom and dominion and glory and everything else and, and the nations serve that people Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, I mean, there's a number of ways that the other ways that is interpreted, but that's sort of what it comes down to from my point of view, as, as best I can understand it. Um, and the extraordinary thing that Jesus does is to identify himself with that faithful community. So, you know, this this story he is now retold, but he makes himself that son of man figure. You know, it's partly about his faithfulness and his suffering and his vindication but you know as you see when when he talks in those terms he also involves his disciples with them so uh, you know if anyone would follow me to take up his cross as well everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Because it's not just, you know, this is the historical sort of part to this. Jesus goes ahead. He's the forerunner. He's the pioneer. He's the one who opens up this narrow road a narrow path leading to life but if others don't follow him down it if other jews don't follow him down it with the the, the same message and the same conviction and if you know sooner or later the same experience of the holy spirit if they don't follow him down that and, and being prepared to take up their own cross and to suffer as he suffered and to die as he died and be raised and vindicated and glorified as he was then uh, you know there's still no future it, he needed followers mm. Do you see what I mean? So, yeah. so in that way, it's not that Jesus is. It's, there's not a a distinctive about Jesus in that message as much as it is, you know, the following me is a participation in this community, similar to how he appropriates this text in Daniel yeah, about I, a community. I, I heard, I listened to the podcast you did with Daniel Kirk, and I think he made the same point about a cruciform community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that's a sort of a crucial part of the the process if you're going to what's what's at stake is the future of a people if the if the jews rebel against the romans and the romans come back and crush them and destroy the temple that's sort of the end of it pretty much at least from you know as far as they could tell from that point of view that, that was a broad road leading to destruction and many were on it there needed to be a narrow road leading to life mm-hmm. uh, a community that was had built into it the resources, the vision, the imagination, the trust that would enable it to become part of or the, the, the kernel, the core of a new future for God's people, the beginning of something new. So, I want to look at going back to just how you identified how Jesus would have used the text, say, of Daniel and appropriated that. from. So, in some ways, are, are you advocating that the church needs to learn how to do this better, how to make new meaning? I think we've spent the last few hundred years since we have historical criticism and these tools, mm. uh, a, a heavy emphasis on finding out what it meant back there. That we're yeah. a little anemic on how do we make new meaning, and we have, as an example, Jesus and, and a lot of the writers of the New Testament really doing that almost without any inhibition. I mean, just 
they do this all the, over the place, and we talk about that on the podcast. Yeah, I, I, I like that. I mean, it's a good way of putting it. I, it's it's an extraordinarily creative moment in in the history of God's people. The same way that the exile was an extraordinarily creative moment, uh, both before and after, and it was transformative. And I, yeah, I, I think. Well, I mean, Christendom was a creative moment. The church had to fashion, not from nothing, but it had to, it had to sort of create Christian society, dominant Christian society. I, that's all fallen apart in, in a big way. We're having to do it again. And so many of the conversations that are going on in the church at the moment are about how do we fashion a, you know, a new imaginary for mm-hmm. the church uh, it, uh, how do we imagine a new future? Uh, it, it's it's not so different to to what the church was doing two thousand years ago, but the circumstances are massively different. That's right. Yeah, and it's hard to just simply go to the book, so to speak, and expect it to address those questions directly. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, t- yeah. two questions. One one is just I'm going to go back a little bit because. I mean, some things are clicking for me here, and just to make sure that I get something. So when you go to Philippians, you know, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. Mm-hmm. Um, that is um, Paul's vision, let's say, for the future of this thing. He himself might not have been thinking of the conversion of the Roman world, or maybe he was. What do you think? I I, I think Paul was focused on the Roman, Greek and Roman world. I, I, I tend to think, you know, he sets out to, to travel from Jerusalem yeah. by way of Illyrica all the way to Spain, stopping at Rome on the way. I, I think that he's acting out... Uh, I think he's acting out his God, the God of Israel, the God of, of sort of oppressed, marginal Israel, annexing for himself yeah. the nations of the empire. I think he acts out. I think Acts 17 is really important in this, is that that thing that he, what he talks about, which we always feel sort of awkward about because he doesn't proclaim the gospel there. <laughs> but he does proclaim the gospel. And the gospel is precisely that the God of Israel is claiming this whole Oikumene, the you know the the this empire in effect in in Luke Acts, for himself he's going to judge it. The, the those centuries of he's overlooked their ignorance, their paganism for centuries, but it, no longer. Right. He's 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 lost patience with them. He's they've run out of time, and he's now fixed a day on which he will judge this world by a man whom he has appointed. Now right. you know whether that's Paul or Luke or or something between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it encapsulates very well the vision of an apostle sent from Jerusalem to claim the nations for the God of Israel right. in the name of Jesus. And likewise, Acts 1, I mean, I'm thinking of Acts of, uh, you know, uh, a common passage that supports missionary activity is the gospel going from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. But that's also, I mean, okay, here, here's my point. My point is that Philippians and Acts are oftentimes understood somewhat automatically as envisioning the way, way, way future. Like, we're not there yet, but what you're saying is that those really have a more immediate horizon within, let's say, 300 years or so of when these things were being written. Yeah. Roughly, like, you know, around the time, you know, okay, the Roman Empire is converted, 
whatever that means, you know, it may not very well. Yeah, it's a process but, and it's messy. Um, <laughs> yeah, right, and we're right. somewhat embarrassed by it now, but um, right, okay. that's what right. happened. And if you'd yeah. gone back and asked people at the time, I, I'd put this, this argument to them, I, maybe it would have made a lot of sense. Right. It's as we look back on the failure of Christendom because we have bought into a whole package of Enlightenment values. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, th- that's a very different point of view. Yeah. Okay. And actually, the second question I have is a lot more complicated. Feel free to give a quick answer if it's at all possible. If not, that's okay. No, go um, ahead. How does resurrection fit into this whole way of thinking? Yeah. I, I mean, from my point of view, this was sort of the starting point in some ways of this this line of thinking. Um, I, we think of we tend to think Jesus being resurrected ahead of. Uh, a final resurrection of all the dead. So the the resurrection that is described in Revelation 20 is anticipated in Jesus. Within that sort of Jewish perspective, I think it makes much more sense to say that actually what Jesus anticipates is the resurrection of faithful suffering Israel uh, in, in the context of the crisis. So you go back to Daniel 12, and you have a, a, a resurrection of those who are sleeping in the dust of the earth. Some of them, the righteous, the wise, those mm-hmm. who, who turn many to righteousness, some of those are raised to life. Some are raised to disgrace and, and, and shame and, and so on. So you, you've got this sort of limited resurrection of a number of Jews as part of the deliverance and restoration of Israel at uh, the moment of crime, presumably as part of that crisis in, in, in involving um, the Greeks at the time. I mean, this, I guess that can be understood in different ways, but it, it's, uh, and you see it elsewhere in Jewish writings as well, this, this hope that, you see it in the Maccabean literature, the, the, um, the seven sons who are persecuted by Antiochus uh, express the hope that they will live again mm-hmm. even though he uh, tortures and kills them and it's it's i think what jesus in the resurrection of jesus anticipates is that more immediate historically relevant uh, vindication resurrection of of suffering faithful israel and and he this is important for his disciples because they will face the same opposition that he faced. They will share in his suffering. They will be baptized into his death and, and they will share in his vindication and glory and resurrection. The, the, the final resurrection of all the dead is, a, is another thing beyond that. Uh, and that then becomes about the whole of creation. But, mm-hmm. you know, most of this, most of what's going on in the New Testament is, is, is more narrowly focused on the story of God's people facing the crisis of AD 70 and the crisis of Roman opposition in the, the, the coming centuries. Because if they had not had this conviction, when Jesus comes uh, in a parousia, the sort of parousia that Paul describes in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, when he comes to be welcomed by his people, and, and I'm sort of thinking of this in, in sort of more or less symbolic terms, uh, but when he comes as a sort of visiting king to, to in, in this uh, parousia to be welcomed by his people, it, it's important that they had the certainty that people, that those who had lost their lives wouldn't miss out on this. Uh, so there's, there's this this assumption, this expectation that the, the faithful martyrs will be 
uh, raised. And and just one sort of final note there, that's what you see in, in Revelation 20, chapter 20. I think that that's what this first resurrection of of the the martyrs the the souls seen under the altar uh who the, those beheaded because of for their belief in jesus and the 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 gospel mm-hmm. so i think you know that's resurrection that's the heart of resurrection it, it's god vindicating his faithful servants who have lost their lives in this crisis for the sake of a new future for god's people where that leaves us is you know a little more complicated yeah yeah that's theology (laughs) that's theology yeah exactly (laughs) well we're coming to the end of our time and i kind of like that that cliffhanger of where does that leave us Mm -hmm. uh and and it is the work of of theology so um we want to thank you so much for coming on and and just talking a lot of a lot of sense about these texts that can be really hard to understand like daniel and revelation but before we go is there any place that people can find uh more of you and in the work that you've done in this area or other areas where can people find you either online or books that you've written yeah i i blog uh on a fairly regular basis uh it's www dot and then postost p-o-s-t-o-s-t dot net and and it's it's basically i this is what i blog the this this line that 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 his, this, this narrative historical approach makes sense of scripture but it also gives us a, a good way of dealing with our own context and the, and the the extraordinary extraordinary challenges that the church in the west at least faces today uh, I write uh, a book called The Coming of the Son of Man some time back, a um, book on Romans called The Future of the People of God, uh, and sort of forthcoming stuff that probably doesn't need to be mentioned just yet. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Right. Well, it was a pleasure <laughs> to talk Absolutely. to you guys. Thank you, Andrew. R- very much enjoyed it. All right, folks. Well, thanks for listening to another episode. And... We just want to remind you that we are reissuing a book that Jared and I wrote, what was it, in 2012? 12? Yeah. yeah. Called Genesis for Normal People. That's our first publication together. And and it's been sort of out of circulation, I guess, for various reasons for maybe, I don't know, a couple well, years. Well, there's actually one reason. It's because we've been planning to <laughs> reissue it for about three years now. And are we just now getting around and to it? And stuff came up. <laughs> we just we started a podcast. We stopped caring. <laughs> All that kind of stuff. Anyway, it's finally happening, and it's the the wild and wacky world of uh, basically self-publishing. We sort of figured this out. So I should say Jared figured it out. I just sort of cheered him on from a great distance. I'm really excited about this. Yeah, that's great, Jared. You go do that. Because we've had a lot of people um, who have gotten a lot out of that book. Genesis for Normal People is just a breakdown of kind of thinking about Genesis through ancient eyes and breaking it down into simple categories and terms. And so we're excited to re-release that. We've had a lot of people who use it for small groups and other things. It's a good it's a good resource, so we're excited to get it back out there. So yeah. it's out now. Go to Amazon, anywhere fine books are sold, you'll find it there. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. See you next time.